From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will be talking with Rachel Gordon Barnett and Lisa Kligman Harvey about their book, Kugels and Collards, Stories of Food, Family, and Tradition in Jewish South Carolina. In the book, Lisa and Rachel celebrate the unique and diverse food history of Jewish South Carolina. They have gathered stories and recipes from diverse sources, including Sephardic and Ashkenazi families who have been in the state for hundreds of years, as well as more recent immigrants from Russia and Israel. In our conversation today, we'll explore how these cherished dishes were influenced by available ingredients and complemented by African-American and regional culinary traditions. Rachel and Lisa, thanks for being with us today. And this is an incredible title. we got to figure out, first of all, Lisa, what's a kugel? I'd love to tell you what a kugel is. My grandmother, Ida Kligman, made a kugel every Friday night, and she was from Lithuania. And she came to this country and married my grandfather, Louis Kligman. And every Friday night, she would make a roasted chicken and made a noodle pudding, which is something that they would make in Eastern Europe is comfort food, but to also spread the meal because so, it goes a long way. Sort of like a mac and cheese. It's honestly like a mac and cheese, but it can be sweet. It can be savory. And my grandmother's kugel was a sweet noodle pudding with cream cheese and butter and golden raisins and um, with a little crackly kind of cornflake crispy top on it. So yes, uh, comfort, Jewish comfort food. All right. And Rachel, how did this book come about? I know, first of all, you and Lisa were volunteers at Historic Columbia back about 2012, 2014, something like that. How did you two get linked up with Historic Columbia? In about 2014, Robin Waits convened a group of folks from the Jewish community, different organizations, to come together because they wanted to uh, tell the story of Columbia's Jewish history. Uh, there were lots of people at the table. I represented the Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina, the executive director. Uh, Lisa was there as a community volunteer, also representing other organizations. But from that, we developed a whole program and developed oral histories and walking tours, um, a presence on the website. All of this came together. But Lisa and I both are foodies, and we had a hunch that perhaps a different way of telling Columbia's Jewish history could be telling it through the lens of food and memory. So we approached Robin with this idea, a little different, a little off the wall, and we said, you know, let's try it as a blog. Let's reach out to folks that we know, ask them simple question. Tell us about the best memory you have about food around your mother's table, whether it's a Jewish holiday, a recipe, whatever it is. Give us about 600 words in a recipe and a picture. And we needed a name. So over lunch one day, Lisa just popped out with Kugel's Collards and Knishes. And we went, hmm. 
well, maybe the knish might be a little too far. <laughs> so we ended up with the kugels and collards. Kugels being, of course, what we just discussed, the lakshan kugel, that noodle pudding that comes from the old world, very Jewish-related, and the collards being the southern portion of this entire enterprise. What we talk about is really the southern Jewish table, which we can get into in just a little bit. But the blog um, took off. We had the blog for several years, and then the University of South Carolina Press um, asked if we would be interested in putting a proposal, taking this statewide and turning it into a book, which we did. Four years from the moment that we had our first conversation with the press, um, our book was published, and we are now holding this lovely book that we're very proud of because it's not just Lisa and myself. It's contributors from across South Carolina. We have 60 different families represented. These are their words, their family stories, their family's photos and recipes. Well, one thing that you bring out in the book, and that is the Jewish community in South Carolina is uh, not monolithic. The earliest Jewish settlers here were Sephardic. They came from Western Europe, primarily Spain and the Iberian Peninsula, and then the Ashkenazic uh, from Central Europe, uh, Eastern Europe. And you mentioned your grandmother was from Lithuania. That's right. Uh, but people forget that uh, the Moise and others are descended from those 17th century settlers that made Charleston the largest Jewish city <laughs> in the United States yeah. until the 1820s. That's right. We really wanted to have um, show that whole breadth of South Carolina's Jewish history. And fortunately for us, Anita Rosenberg is a direct descendant. As a matter of fact, her name is Anita Moes <laughs> is in there. And she did give us a fabulous story about her family. With And we have a couple of recipes from the Moes family cookbooks, which were so special to find out that these cookbooks existed. Well, you're dealing with cuisine coming from the Iberian Peninsula and Central Europe. Any outstanding differences or if you're following traditional dietary laws, there should be a lot of similarities, right? There are similarities, but I would say the differences between the two would probably be in the spices. In the spices. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also perhaps the color um, of the food coming from the Mediterranean. Uh, Ashkenazi food, Eastern European food was brown, <laughs> a little boring. So we really, you know, the Jewish, Southern Jewish table really embraced um, the beautiful Southern vegetables brought by um, enslaved Africans to our coast and to our state. And it has graced alongside the Ashkenazi food and the Eastern European food since uh, we were introduced to the state of South Carolina. I mean, you know, South Carolina is so rural. Rachel grew up in farmland. I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. But my ancestors who came from Ukraine and Lithuania, they were merchants, uh, mm -hmm. not farmers. But um, they were introduced by African-Americans who were employed by my grandparents. They introduced these beautiful vegetables to that table. Okay. Well, let's, let's get into that in a minute. Yeah. But first of all, Jewish dietary laws, you're moving into a territory that's uh, pork, shrimp, deer, wild game, and that doesn't quite fit in with the, the dietary laws. 
So there's a wonderful kind of side passage that you have. Every now and then, if you were to sneak out to the garage, you could have barbecue because that was not cooked in the house. <laughs> yeah. Our grandmothers, uh, the immigrant generation, kept kosher kitchens. And yes, they. Lisa tells as a great story about her family. They could eat the, um, her grandfather loved to go crabbing, and but he, they weren't going to bring them in the house, so they would sit outside. My own family, I grew up in this tiny little town, and the kitchen was kosher for the most part. I never knew what a ham sandwich tasted like till I was way in high school, and it's only because I traded my peanut butter and jelly with a girl <laughs> at school. So, But, you know, as assimilation and as generations go, um, again, we're not monolithic. We say that. There are plenty of people that keep kosher these days, but there are plenty of us who have fallen by the wayside, and I have to admit I'm one of those. <laughs> well, Lisa, you talked about the employing uh, families employing African-Americans in the kitchen. Traditional African-American and South Carolina cuisine, you use not only pork. If you're going to cook collards, you got to put a piece of pork in there. So how... The, the interaction of the Jewish housewife with the black cook in the kitchen, you know, all of a sudden you can't. How did talk, that work out? Right. How did that work out? So yeah. let me kind of take a back step and tell you a little personal story about my grandparents who were from, who lived in Charleston. Um, and this is my maternal grandparents. And it was Mildred and Joe Firetag. And they um, were, in the early years, lived on St. Philip Street in Charleston. And on St. Philip Street, it was home to not only uh, early Jewish folks in Charleston, but also to African-American families. So they lived in a three-story Charleston home with the porches on the side. And next door to the fire tags lived the Gilliards. And the Gilliards, Annie Gilliard and her family lived on one of the floors. And my grandfather had an Army-Navy store on King Street, and my grandmother would work for him from time to time. And Annie was employed by the, uh, the fire tags to um, watch after the children and cook. And in the meantime, her children, the, the, all the kids played in the back, you know, in the kind of the courtyard in the back together, grew up together. Um, but Annie was a wonderful cook in her, you know, in her own right. My grandmother, not so much, but my grandmother did keep a kosher kitchen. And Annie was the one who would tell me which spoon to use. And if I use the, the wrong spoon, that there was it's a tradition, you have to go in the backyard and bury it. There was a dairy uh, set of dishes and uh, silverware and a meat. And so if you mix those, you were in trouble. And Annie was the one who kept that those rules and those traditions. But yes, Walter, she did bring collards over. But no, she didn't cook them with fat back or uh, bacon grease. You know, I don't know if she would take the brisket or the ch roasted chicken or the kugel back to her home, but we certainly loved her okra gumbo. And there's a, a wonderful story in here about Annie's okra gumbo. And it's kind of been a told story for our family where she never wrote anything down. And she would bring in all those beautiful uh, vegetables, the okra, the corn, the tomatoes, and um, made this delicious, um, it really wasn't a gumbo, it's more like a succotash. And my Aunt Linda, who loved that, watched her, and then I watched my Aunt Linda, and for this book, we somehow had to get it down in words, 
in a recipe form with homage to Annie Gilliard. This is her wonderful recipe, and we call it Annie Gilliard's Okra Gumbo. And it graced our, t- our Sabbath table and sometimes, you know, um, along with fried chicken. Okay. Well, again, thinking of the way traditionally fried chicken, yes, you can use canola oil, but the old tradition was you use lard. Uh, you can't. You couldn't do that. I, I did look up your collar recipe, and there was two pats of butter. Right. That's right. Put, so that does make a difference. There's a very distinct flavor in Southern vegetables that Rachel and I d- don't haven't developed that taste for it's we know it but we weren't brought up with it i don't know if that's good or bad i'm not making a judgment at all but there is a very distinct flavor that we grew up without and we we grew up without that little uh crisco that little pot of uh or bowl of lard you know that we you'd cook with we we didn't have that we yeah, our you, grandmothers used Fleischmann's margarine yeah, you you didn't have a can on the back of the stove for the bacon drippings that's it that's right. what I was trying to say yeah yeah but you've got this the substitutes the way that uh, incorporated the dietary laws and, it, and you know it occurs to me that a lot of folks these days particularly when it comes to cooking southern style food vegetables in particular we're talking about they are looking for substitutes I, it, this reminds me the whole thing about collards and what you put in them to flavor them that uh, the Lee brothers, and I can't remember whether it was a Ted or Matt, talked about their favorite thing to flavor their collards when they were cooking them was a smoked turkey wing. They would throw that in the pot and it would add just uh, because it was smoked, it would bring that smoked flavor and add that little bit of fat. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of folks are looking for those substitutes these well, days. I can tell you what what we do to flavor mm-hmm. our food, and it's probably not too any healthier than, than um, lard, but it's chicken fat. And the uh-huh. word for chicken fat is called schmaltz. It's a rendering of cut chicken fat and chicken skin. And you render that down, and sometimes you actually can use the chicken skin to make a nice kind of almost like a crackling. And we call it gribbonies. I put schmaltz, a little bit of schmaltz, and probably in when I caramelize onions, I'll use a little bit of schmaltz in my caramelized onions for okra gumbo. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Collards in our family, I do the collards usually uh-huh. with my son-in-law. Uh, between Christmas and New Year's, gets from the farmer's market. And what we cook our collards with is kielbasa. Uh, that's that's yeah. interesting. That, that gives it a that's good That's a substitute since we can't right. get, the, get the sausage, the New Orleans sausage that right. we want. So yeah. kielbasa is the next, yeah. next That's a nice thing. flavoring. Now, there is a recipe for collards in the book that's Azella's Kosher Collards. It was written by her great-granddaughter, and Azella... Uh, was actually raised in a Jewish home, and the family kept kosher, and so that's how she learned to cook as well. And even as uh, an adult, when she married and had her own children, she did not cook with pork. And the recipe is a wonderful collards recipe. We have had it at several events, and she uses interesting seasonings for that recipe which I highly recommend. My collard recipe comes from um, Ethel May Glover, who cooked for my grandmother and my mother. Um, She worked for our family for many, many years. And uh, my grandmother was from Baltimore originally, so she really didn't know anything about 
the South when she was brought down to South Carolina to this tiny town in the 1920s. But she didn't know how to, uh, the kosher rules. So she and Ethel, you know, they formed an alliance and they um, taught each other. When my mother married my father in the 50s, she lived in Charleston and came home to Somerton as well. And Ethel, in turn, had to teach my mother all of this because my mother had never learned to cook. Her mother had a store and she was working all the time. So, you know, it gets passed down different ways and shared. It's uh, shared that way. You've got lots of stories, and I see, Lisa, you've got some there. You want to tell that one or read a little bit of it? I just think that, you know, we've got 60 um, contributors, and sometimes the voices of these um, contributors speak better than even Rachel and I can, and that's what we really tried to do in the book was to keep the voice of the person who was telling the story. And I have a wonderful story from my Aunt Clara Baker, who had a grocery store um, down in the, in the, I think, Ward 1 here in Columbia, South Carolina. Clara was my grandfather's sister. She was one of the seven children that came from the Ukraine to America. Well, it was Russia then. And it's interesting because, um, Walter, two of the Kligman sisters, or Kligerman at that time, married two Baker brothers. And the Bakers are, so I'm essentially related to everybody in Columbia. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I love this little passage. It says the relationships that Clara built with her clientele at her grocery store made her a well-known figure in Ward 1. Although she was a white Jewish woman serving an almost exclusive African-American clientele, through 41 years of reliable service, relation building, and the generous lending of credit to those in need, she became a protected and respected member of her community. In a quick look around Baker's Grocery, a customer might see a section of fresh produce with onions, collards, and turnip greens, milk and butter, eggs brought in from an elderly woman in the neighborhood, and dry goods such as tobacco, first aid items, clothing goods, and a meat counter. Baker's advertised a slew of non-kosher meats, including ham hocks, pig ears, and pickled pig's feet. Despite the store's trafe, which means non-kosher goods, the Baker family was still very familiar with old-world Jewish food traditions, and Clara often made borscht, strudel, and homemade dill pickles at home for her family. And I just think that this illustrates how even though we were in the South and were assimilated, that we did try to hang on to traditions, at least that generation did. And we welcomed collards and we welcomed the vegetables. But, you know, I think it was our grandmothers who we also honor in this book and the women that came before us who really tried to keep the the Jewish traditions as well as the Southern. And we really, I don't, I think it wasn't until after we put everything together that we saw that these women were the same and that the, how they came together was a nice blend of Southern and Jewish foods. Rachel, you said you no longer keep kosher. What about the next generation, your children? 
is that younger generation of Jewish South Carolinians keeping kosher? or Some some may. I can speak from my own family. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter actually, and, and that's our last chapter, by the way, Walter. The last chapter is the legacy. And it's the chapter that I love the most, I think, because we asked mm-hmm. young women, just we should have asked young men as well, to write their stories. And they're, they're writing about their mothers, our generation, and their grandmothers. And they write about love. Food is love universally. It was amazing to get these essays from these girls, and they almost said the same sort of thing. So they are all keeping their own traditions. My own daughter is a fabulous cook, far more creative than I am, but she's a pescatarian. So she is reinterpreting Jewish recipes um, with her own take on it, whether it's vegetarian or with using a lot more fish. Um, we have a, a essay from Allie Rosen. She's from Charleston. Allie writes about a fabulous recipe that she created. It's a grits lots casserole where she is taking uh, a very southern grits and she's combining that with the locks. And it turns out to be this wonderful brunch recipe. So, you know, I think everybody's doing their own thing. And I really like to see the fact that they're pushing the envelope a little bit. For folks who don't know what lox are, explain that. Um, lots are smoked salmon. So oh. with grits. Yeah. Wow. It's really a good combination. Man. It's a very rich casserole. I've made mm. it. <laughs> it's in the book. It's very good. Well, are there kosher delis in Charleston or Columbia? I don't Not kosher. We have Groucho's in Columbia. We have great story written by Bruce Miller mm-hmm. about Groucho's, of course, which oh, is oh. a mainstay. And in Charleston, to my knowledge right now, there are no kosher restaurants. Uh, there are a couple of wonderful kosher caterers down there, however. Okay. Well, and, and of course, Groucho's has now become statewide. Right. That's right. Now, my, my cousin Eli and Aaron Hyman own Hyman Seafood. And Aaron started off as Aaron's Deli when it's a... Uh, uh, on Meeting Street, the restaurant's on Meeting Street, and they took over their father's wholesale um, space where he sold dry goods and uniforms, and then they took that over. It's kind of right in front of where Charleston Place is. So it started as Aaron's Deli, which was deli-style, not kosher foods in Charleston, where you could get a good pastrami sandwich and potato salad. And then um, his brother, Eli, came home from the Israeli army. He served in the Israeli army and came home and decided to grow the business and saw that it had potential as a seafood restaurant. But um, they both keep kosher in their homes. Eli still keeps kosher in his home to this day, which is kind of ironic, running a seafood restaurant in (laughs) South Carolina. But he has created a dish instead of the shrimp and grits, which we all love in South Carolina. But shellfish is not kosher. So in his restaurant, he created a salmon and grits. So he makes salmon different ways and puts it on top of a grits, and it's delicious. We just had some the other week when we were in Charleston, didn't we? It was He treated us to a, a plate of that. And so I think that where we can, I think people are still trying to make um, dishes that may be perhaps something that their grandparents would eat. 
but they're not they're not truly kosher. Salmon and grits just took me back to my grandmother, by the way. That's right. Who was mm-hmm. born in the in Denmark, South Carolina. Ah. Now, of course, by the time I came along, it, she was getting canned salmon. Right. But mm-hmm. she loved salmon and grits, mm-hmm. and I and I grew up with that too. What a great. Well, thing. you can have if if you had to eat grits, and I said growing up had to have grits for breakfast every morning, uh, but. <laughs> Come now, Walter. Come now. <laughs> you could you could serve any kind of meat with it. Right. Yeah. You know, in in dove season, we had we had dove and oh yeah, you know, uh, fish and grits. That was my grandfather. Fried fish, yeah. fried fish mm-hmm. and grits. Yes. You know, and then of course the usual was either sausage or or mm-hmm. bacon. Yeah. Um, today it's wonderful, but you know, you're 12 years old. You're sitting there. Oh, Grits and bacon again. <laughs> Can I have cereal? No, you've, you've got to have a hot breakfast before you go off. That's right. I had the same thing, yeah. We're getting toward the end of our time, but I'm wondering, you guys have told some great stories. This might be difficult to do. Maybe we could pick out a favorite recipe or a favorite story about some of the folks in the book. That's so many. Um, well, so Rachel was talking about the last chapter, and it is one of my favorite chapters as well, because it really wraps up, I think, our intention. And so memories around that table, anybody, it doesn't matter if there's a Jewish table or um, a Christian holiday table, I think that food memories are so important. And so our daughters kind of got that. They really summed it up for us in this last chapter. My daughter's uh, essay was Food is Our Family's Love Language. She just tells the story so beautifully about memories of her grandmother, but also how her grandparents assimilated. So I thought maybe I could just read this little passage on how she ends it up. And then um, I do have a favorite recipe, too, that I can tell you about. Um, Jordan, Jordan writes, when I think back to my grandmother and how hugely important being Jewish was to her, I can't help but think about how inherently Southern she was, too. She was born and raised in Charleston and experienced daily firsthand low country cuisine. My grandmother, with her Southern draw, loved barbecue ribs, shrimp boils, steamed oysters, and bacon cheeseburgers. It was like being Jewish was of utmost importance, but growing up around these irresistibly delicious foods was too much to withstand. (laughs) So she gave in in a big way. (laughs) Okay. All right. Rachel? Uh, Retta Mendelson writes, and she grew up in Orangeburg, and her story is one that I think sort of summarizes. Uh, She talks about um, we ate just like our non-Jewish neighbors, but with an exception, mm-hmm. with exceptions, we didn't have that little bacon grease can on our, and our mothers used Fleischmann's margarine, and we we ate things that no one else ate in Orangeburg, like you know brisket and bagels and chopped liver and kugel. Right. But when they would go to the beach, they would pack up that brisket and chopped liver, but they would add to it barbecue, fried chicken, and all of those Southern foods. Deviled eggs. Deviled eggs, yeah. So I love Retta's story because um, she captures that smaller town back in the 50s and 60s um, story so well. Well, you talk about the Jewish communities in smaller towns and where they were once thriving communities, they have 
as all small towns, they have begun population declines, but the Jewish population has really migrated to the cities. Absolutely. Sumter used to have two Jewish congregations. Now they struggle to keep one. Well, they don't even have one now, but they have taken care of Temple uh, the Sinai very well. Um, yeah. Tell, tell Walter about the Jewish Merchant Project. So through the Jewish Historical Society of South Carolina, uh, about six years ago, we um, we have we're in existence for thirty years this year. By the way, so we've been collecting stories. We were founded when Isadora Lurie said, "Small town Jewish life is disappearing, and we need to capture it." And through Isadora's um, push, and with Alex Sanders, who was president of the College of Charleston at that time, uh, the um, society was born. And for thirty years, we have collected stories about South Carolina's Jewish families. Uh, about six years ago, I realized we've been doing this, but we have no repository for all of these merchant stories. So the Jewish Merchant Project was begun. We have a complete website. We have two researchers that we are documenting every Jewish merchant that ever set foot in South Carolina, even beginning back with peddlers, which I find fascinating, that whole peddler beginnings. And we are approaching about 900 merchants right now. We have not begun <laughs> to even hit the PD region yet. They found um, 75 Jewish merchants in Sumter alone. Wow. And so, That's another podcast for you. Yeah, yeah. And so we are documenting this. We are also working with local communities to put up historic markers through the South Carolina Department of History and Archives. Um, to those merchants on those main streets. We have one in Orangeburg now. Aiken celebrated their 100th anniversary uh, last year, and there is a marker on Lawrence Street. And we will dedicate a marker next week in Rock Hill to their Jewish merchants. It has been an amazing journey to work, and we're working with Historic Columbia on this initiative mm -hmm. there with their researchers. So I Having grown up as the child of a small-town merchant, this is really near and dear to my heart because those those little towns, we have towns that don't even exist on the map anymore, but there was a merchant in that town when it was there and vibrant. I thought you'd want to know about that. I, yeah. I, I yeah. do. Yeah. and. And ladies, uh, I hate to say this, Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. <laughs> Is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners before we sign off today? Lisa? Thank you so much for having us. I've talked a little bit at some of my favorite recipes in the book, but this book is graced with gorgeous photos by Forrest Klontz. And um, um, I've talked a little bit about the salmon and grits, and that's in the rest, that's in the book. And I've talked about the okra gumbo, and that's in the book. But one of the very last pictures and photos is uh, a Star of David poppy seed cake. And it, though, those other two recipes were not mine, but this one's mine. And it is a beautiful, easy cake. It's a dump cake. And it is in a Nordic Ware Star of David mold. I entered it in the South Carolina State Fair last month and won a blue ribbon for it. And <laughs> wow. it I'd love to encourage uh, your listeners to look for all these recipes, but this one's very, very simple and turns out very beautiful. You don't have to use a Jewish Star of Bucket. Uh, but we've been asked, what do we hope people take away from this book? And, um, you know, as we approach the holidays uh, and after being through our own journey, what I hope people will take away is the fact that um, you don't have to be Jewish. This is just family. These are family traditions and memories is to write them down. 
and to get those family recipes because I know what we struggled with when we had to put down some of the family recipes. But this is a great time of the year when families are around the table to start talking about those food stories, those family memories, and then maybe go in the kitchen and cook and, you know, have that granddaughter or daughter or whoever sit there and get those measurements down because it's so it's so special for families to continue their their traditions this way. Well, this has been a fascinating journey today, ladies, and I want to thank Lisa Kligman Harvey and Rachel Gordon Barnett for being with us today on The Journal. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was great fun talking with Lisa Harvey and Rachel Barnett. The stories and recipes that they have gathered for their book, Kugels and Collards, are a vital part of the South's Jewish history, tradition, and foodways, stretching across state lines to shape Southern culture. And these stories are an important part of our state's culture and history. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's Journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available at SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org on the SCETV app, as well as your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon. <laughs>